Today, if you will open your Bibles first to Romans chapter 6, uh, the topic or theme of today's sermon is on the misuse of the law. We talked about one misuse of the law of God last week, and that was legalism or moralism. And today we're going to talk about another misuse of God's law, and that will be antinomianism or lawlessness or license to sin. And so today's sermon basically flows out of what we've been studying in Romans, but it's more of an attempt to encapsulate some of the themes that we've been talking about uh, in that passage. I think it will be very helpful to sort of clarify uh, things that we are discussing and learning from Romans. So we're in Romans chapter 6, and there's a lot of confusion about the relationship of the law of God to the life of the believer. And one of those distortions was legalism. We talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about another one called antinomianism. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin by reading in chapter 6. Let's look at verses 14 through 15. For sin will not, or for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? Look also with me in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions roused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we take the time this morning to stop and look at these heretical views regarding your law, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the one who speaks as well as the one who hears. And we do pray that what is said today will lift up the person of Jesus Christ and will give him glory and him alone, but will also be helpful in our walk with him and in our journey of faith and in our sanctification as we are being conformed more and more into the glorious image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, um, 
When you use a term like antinomianism, of course, the first thing that jumps into your mind is, what is that? What is antinomianism? Sounds ominous, but here's what it is in simple English. Anti means to be against something, right? Or to be opposed to something. If I were to call you an anti-American, that would have context and meaning as to how I said it and why I said it to you. But that would mean you're against America, you're against the government, you're against the way of life. Uh, you really are opposed to everything America stands for. And an antinomian is a person who is opposed to or against the law of God. Let's just make it as simple as possible. Most of us understand, as Christian just mentioned, mentioned that there were 613 commandments, but were reduced for helpfulness to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, or the moral law of God. To be a man, an antinomian would be a person who says, once converted to Christianity, Romans just said it, I am no longer under the binding authority of the law. The law can no longer bind my conscience as a person. I am free, hallelujah, to live any way I want to because it doesn't really matter how I live since my life is in Christ. I'm united to him. I have his righteousness. There's really no incentive to go on living for Christ. I've told you this the last couple of weeks, but the credo uh, for antinomian is um, freed from the law. Oh, blessed condition. I can sin as I please and still have remission. And that's a lie. Because you're never free from the law of God. You are free from the law of God as a means by which you obey it to establish or develop or create a relationship from God. You are completely free from that. The law has no place for you in that. But at the same time, you are free in Christ. You now have been set free in Christ, and you are now under the law, under the law of Christ. The law in the hands of Christ rules us as believers. And so antinomianism denies that. Just as legalism we looked at last week elevates the law, as a means by which we either maintain or create a relationship with God, antinomianism says we're done with the law. J.I. Packer in his book on uh, concise theology talks about antinomianism and he gives us several different kinds of it. But before I get into that, what does antinomianism look like today in 2024? Because I can talk about what it looked like in 1539 when Luther had his debate with uh, Agricola on the law and the life of the believer. But what does it look like today? Well, what it looks like today is what we might call easy believism. And easy believism is a person who professes to be a Christian without ever really repenting of anything. 
of someone who has just said, yes, I believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't show, any, their faith in Christ isn't living because it doesn't show itself in repentance or in any kind of character change or in any kind of lifestyle change. That would be a person today who we might call an antinomianism. Or another kind of person we might call an antinomian today would be the kind of person who uh, professes something that uh, so religious sociologists have called therapeutic moral uh, deism. In other words, that um, Christianity and Jesus is all about me. He accepts me like I am. He loves me like I am. He's always there for me. And it doesn't really matter whether my life changes or not. I'm in. I'm accepted and therefore loved. And he will forever love me. And it's a great place to be. And so that is also another form of antinomianism. Packer, though, gives a, a household list. He says there's something called dualistic antinomianism, and it's in the Gnostic heresy found in both Jude and Peter. Uh, this view sees salvation for the soul only and bodily behavior is irrelevant both to God's interest and to the soul's health. So one may behave riotously and it will not matter. There are those who are dualistic in regard to the body and the soul. The soul's what is really getting saved. What you do in the body doesn't matter at all. And that happened in the first century as a heresy called dualistic antinomianism. There's another one. And it's called spirit-centered antinomianism. And it puts such trust in the Holy Spirit's inward promptings as to deny any need to be taught by the law of God how how we are to live, how we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, how we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there is a, this was pretty popular in some of what we would call charismatic circles in which people felt so strongly that they didn't really need the objective word of God. They didn't really need the law of God to tell them how to live. For them, that was legalism. What's true is just follow the inward prompting of the Holy Spirit. But how do you know which spirit you're listening to? Whether it's your spirit or the Holy Spirit or demon, demonic spirits. And the way you know is because the Holy Spirit always agrees with the Word of God, always leads us into what the law commands us. That's how you know you're being led by the Holy Spirit. And then Packer talks about another kind of antinomianism, and that would be what he calls Christ-centered antinomianism argues that God does not see at all ever any sin in believers because they are united to Christ who kept the law for them and therefore what they actually do makes no difference providing that they keep believing. But the whole first part of the book of 1 John was written to totally deliver us from that lie. Uh, the, the point is um, that the Bible shows us that living in sin persistently without repentance is embracing sin as a way of life. 
Then there's something called dispensational antinomianism. And when I found about, out about this, I got really excited. There's a system, a hermeneutic, for understanding how to interpret the Bible. And dispensationalists look at something called the Old Testament, and they basically see the Old Testament as something that was written for the Jews. In other words, its application is mainly toward the Jews. And even the Sermon on the Mount, dispensationalists used to say, and I think they're changing a little bit to be fair, but what they used to say and declare was the Sermon on the Mount had nothing to do with how you and I live as Gentile believers, but is rather a reserved ethic for the millennium. Now, the first time I heard that, I went, so glad to hear that. Because the Sermon on the Mount had been eating my lunch. The Sermon on the Mount had been exposing me when Jesus said it isn't merely the external statement of what the law says to you, but the spirit of the law. How does the law speak in concrete ways to our life and our lifestyle? And Jesus would say, you've heard it said it's wrong uh, to commit adultery with a, with a woman, uh, a man committing adultery with a woman. But I say unto you, anyone who looks with lust in his heart upon a woman has committed adultery already. Well, that's disturbing, isn't it? Somebody asked me last week, what, what would you rather have, a church full of antinomians or a church full of legalists? I said, that's what I do have. But he said, no, you can only pick one. I'm not going to say his name I'm looking at. No, I'm not. But, and I know how he meant the question. It was a good question. And I said, well, living with legalists, it's a lot neater and cleaner and nicer. People are a little, you know, uptight, wound. People are a little uh, snobby and look down their noses at you. But you can ignore that. I said, but at least things are neat and clean. You don't always have to be cleaning up messes. I said, antinomians? It's drama, buddy. 100% drama, stuff happening all the time, getting questions all the time about can I do this, can I do that, and still be a Christian. And uh, some don't even care. They just live any way they want to, any way they feel. Uh, happy that the Lord has freed them from the oppressive, puritanical, uh, legalistic law. By the way, how do you become an antinomian? Often it's an overreaction to being a legalist. I would say that my antinomian lifestyle basically came when I once understood what legalism was and I was in a very legalistic church, grew up in a very legalistic culture and denomination and so I resisted that as the pendulum swung. It didn't swing at that point to the gospel. It swung all the way over here to something called antinomianism. And I discovered, you know, it's like a friend of mine used to say, when I became a Christian, I got rid of all my vices. When I became Reformed, I got them all back. But that last statement is an antinomian statement. You do not get all your vices back. You are called to holiness. God says, be holy because I am holy. And the standard of God remains Packer has a couple of more. I'm not going to go much further with it. But dispensationalism basically relegated the law of God to Israel. Uh, and for us, we're sort of not in the loop anyway. And that's how they speak. There's something called dialectical antinomianism, which is the birth child of both Bach, uh, Bach, Bart, 
and Brunner, who are neo-Orthodox theologians in Germany in the 30s, and both argued that uh, the Word of God basically uh, becomes the word of God for you when you experience it and then you may experience it when it comes to you as law and gospel. And then there's what's called situationist antinomianism. Uh, Fletcher uh, was an ethicist who came up with situationist antinomianism that says that a motive and intention of the love is all that God now requires of Christians. So Christians were to be loved people. And we're to love and we're to do what love demands in any situation. But it's contentless. What does love demand? Well, whatever my love demands. And my love needs to be transformed and informed by the law of God, the transcript of God's character. Do you understand what the law of God is? The law of God is a revelation of who God is. It's a transcript, as it were, of God's character of holiness. And so the law in the hands of sin is a very destructive thing to our lives. As a matter of fact, placing yourself under the law with the law being in the hands of sin only exacerbates, intensifies, and creates more sin. But what we're going to learn today is once the law is in the hands of Christ, it becomes very liberating and fulfilling and filled with joy and all the duties God has called us to become a delight. So I'm sort of showing my hand a little bit ahead of time. We've got a long way to go. But the curse of antinomianism is rejecting, as it were, God's law having any place in the life of a believer. Uh, and so antinomians are basically loosey-goosey, sex, drugs, rock and roll, let's party. That's what antinomians are. And they may show itself in different ways, but it's kind of a, an ethic that is divorced from God's revelation. And so, if that's what it is, how do we go about understanding the nature of it? And to do that, uh, I'm going to refer again to Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, where he talks about antinomianism. And he does so with amazing wisdom and insight. Uh, Ferguson tells us a lot about antinomianism in the book. Uh, I was on a trip with him last year in London and we were in um, that place in Scotland where the golf course is, St. Andrews. I got me a couple of caps I wear now from St. Andrews. Feel like I'm somebody. I got the righteousness of the golf world on my head. <laughs> but uh, we were in St. Andrews, and I walked up to him in uh, the um, store at the 18th Green where you buy everything, and boy, was it expensive. Uh, I can count euros. I'm not quite real good with pounds yet, but it pounded me. So anyway, I'm looking at stuff, and he's standing right beside me, and I turn to look at him, and I said, I got, I said, there's something I want to tell you. Of course, he looked at me. He, he'd already seen me in the service. He knew who I was. I said, I am so grateful you wrote that book called The Whole Christ. I said, I listened to tapes back in 1989 where you lectured the lectures you gave then became the book. And I said, who has cassette tapes anymore? I said, I don't even know where they are. 
I said, but you wrote it down, and I think it is the clearest description of the kind of life God calls us to as we're united to Christ, believing the gospel. Here's the core problem with either legalism or antinomianism is neither one understands the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. And I have to tell you, whether you call yourself an antinomian or not, whether you call yourself a legalist or not, most people I meet do not understand the gospel. They don't understand the grace of God and truth. And so therefore, it shows itself by moving toward either one of these things, which are both a rejection of the law granted, but what they have in common, both of them, is they both reject the gospel of grace. They do not understand that our being united with Christ as we are organically connected to him by faith, and we draw our very life from him, we are united to the whole Christ, who is both our Savior and our Lord and our Master, who rules our life. And a person who understands the gospel understands this. What God demands of me as a believer is 100% absolute obedience to the law. That's what God demands from me as a believer. I'm not telling you I can keep the law. I'm telling you I can't. But that doesn't change the standard of what God wants in our lives. Now, I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit more about the Christian and the law of God. And so I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about this important subject because I think it's extremely helpful. We talk a lot about being saved by grace here at Spring Meadows and not by our good works or not by our obedience to any standard or any law. Indeed, Paul says that we are not under law but under grace. But what does it mean as far as having an obligation to submit to God's will as written in his word? Do we have to obey the law and the answer of the Bible to that, properly exegeted, understood, and interpreted, is absolutely, absolutely. The law, the Ten Commandments, still have authority to bind our conscience as believers. To be under the law refers to the law obeying and law relying. Galatians 10, uh, 3.10 tells us that all who rely on the law are under its curse. For cursed is anyone who tries to submit to the law to keep it to win God's favor. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, which he has, how can we do this? By turning to the law, Paul put it this way. Though he is not under the law, I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. Though he is not under the law as a way to earn salvation, he is now freed to see the beauty of God's law as fulfilled in Christ and submits to it as a way of loving his Savior and a way of loving his neighbor. How does this work? The law no longer is a covenant of works for us, but is rather a covenant of life for us. 
And in the hands of Christ, it becomes a liberating thing. First, we embrace the law of God in order to learn more about who God really is. Leviticus 19 is a magnificent chapter which both expands on all of the Ten Commandments and also summarizes them into love your neighbor as yourself. It shows how God's law was not a matter only of ritual purity, but was to transform every corner and crevice of one's practical life. In Leviticus 19.2, however, God introduces the whole law by saying, Be holy, for I am holy. In other words, if you want to know who I really am, and if you want to know what I love and what I hate, and if you want to know what my heart is and become like me, obey my law. Now, for all of you who want to call me an antinomian, did you hear that? <laughs> I am not an antinomian. Please, obey my law. Second, we embrace the law of God in order to discover our true selves. Uh, Deuteronomy says, What does the Lord require of you but to hear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding to you this day for your good. Ernest Kevin a British guy, wrote about a hundred years ago, maybe not quite that long, a book called The Grace of the Law, that the law itself is a gift of God's grace to us. And it's a wonderful gift that protects us from destroying ourselves and that enables us to flourish as a human being, to reach the goals that God has set for us in life. And so... Here we see that the law of God is a gift of grace, that it is the foundation of human flourishing. It is not busy work assigned to please an arbitrary whim of a capricious deity. The law of God simply shows us what human beings were built to do to worship God alone, to love their neighbors as themselves, to tell the truth, to keep their promises, to forgive everything, to act with justice. When we move against those laws, we move against our own natures and happiness. Disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of reality that can only lead to breakdown and disintegration. You want to destroy yourself? It's easy to do. Just ignore God's law. Ignore what he has given to us, not only as a means of wisdom, but also to protect us from our self-destructive tendencies. And so the law of God is a beautiful thing. I, I've often told the story of being on Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, uh, near Chattanooga, Covenant College, our uh, denominational college, is on top of that mountain. But I remember being there as a little kid. I went to Rock City, and that was a lot of fun as a little kid. And we got in the car. We're going down the mountain. And on one side of the road, there's the mountain. And on the other side of the road, there's nothing. No fence, no guard protectors, just nothing. And so we got in the car, and my dad, all of a sudden I noticed the back of his neck was really red. He's a redneck, but I mean even more red than usual. 
and his ears were getting red, and I noticed that there was a little bit of a panic going on in the car. What had happened, I was later to find out, was our brakes went out on our 1955 Chevrolet car. And my dad was downshifting and using the clutch to slow the car down, and we were taking the curves like we were on a, re a speedway. And so I remember, I said, Dad, you've never driven. What are you driving like this for? He said, just be quiet. <laughs> he might have said shut up, but we couldn't say that word in our house. So, you know, we're going down the hill, and this is what happened. I mean, this is the grace of God. This is angels, whatever you want to say, the sovereignty of God. We rolled down, came to the first light. It was green, coasted right into the bay of a service station who fixed our brakes. That's so I could be alive today to preach to you this message. That's what happened. Why? Because there were no guardrails along the road down the mountain. The law of God are guardrails for your life. You cannot violate God's Ten Commandments without destruction ensuing. Not only upon you, but whoever you engage in that process. And so the law of God is, as wonderful as it is, is a gift of God that shows us how to worship God, how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Third, we understand the law of God as fulfilled in Christ. This means two things. One, we already mentioned Christ completely fulfilled the requirements of the law in our place so that when he took the penalty of our sins deserved, we could receive the blessing of righteousness that he deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us so that in him, united to him by faith, we would become the righteousness of God. And so we have that as part of Christ's obedience to the law. However, we also recognize that many parts of the Old Testament law no longer relate directly to us as believers. Hear me carefully. Since Jesus is the ultimate priest, the ultimate temple, the ultimate sacrifice, we observe none of the ceremonial, dietary, and other laws connected to ritual purity. Also, Christians of all nations are now members of the people of God, and God's community no longer exists as a single nation-state under a theocratic government. That doesn't exist anymore with the coming of Christ. Therefore, the civil legislation of the Old Testament is no longer appropriate. Adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death, usually stoning. But in the New Testament, it is dealt with through exhortation and church discipline, as in 1 Corinthians 6 through 7. So there has been changes. When we're talking about the law, we're talking about the moral law, as the Westminster Confession and Heidelberg Catechism both say. And so the law is a pedagogue. It, it leads us to Christ. It shows us our lostness. It shows us our brokenness. It exposes our sin. It exposes our shame. And it drives us to Jesus. But after, the law becomes for us a rule of real living, a tremendous blessing, a tremendous gift of God's grace. Fourth, 
we realize that the law's painful, convicting work is ultimately a gracious thing. When we fully comprehend the kind of life the law requires of us, it can be intimidating. I mentioned earlier the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expounds the Ten Commandments in this comprehensive way. He shows us that the attitude we should have to the world, being salt and light, investing ourselves in the needs of our community, he shows us that even if we disdain and ignore our neighbors, calling them fools, we are attacking their creator in whose image they are made. He calls us to never look on another with lust, living lives of purity and chastity. He insists that we should uh, speak with as much honesty in all our daily interactions as if we were testifying in court under oath. We are told to forgive and to love our enemies. Did you hear that? That to me, when I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount the first time, I mean, it was, it was ripping new <laughs> holes in my heart, showing me the Grand Canyon nature of my sin. But when I saw that Jesus commanded that I love my enemies, I just, I remember I dropped the Bible and said, I can't do that. There's some people I have a real hard time forgiving. And there's some people, man, I don't want to love my enemies. I want to see them come to a less than glorious end. Filled with revenge. Filled with a desire to get back. And forgiveness is, is such a challenge. But I want to tell you something. If you can't forgive anyone, I mean somebody in your life you cannot forgive, you don't understand the gospel at all. You don't understand how much you've been forgiven. For what you have done to God stands as a tower, towering way over anything anybody could ever do to you. And loving our enemies, people who oppose us, people who are against us. <clears throat> One thing that you get when you become a Christian immediately is three enemies. The world, your flesh, and the devil. Then you go to church and that's where you get the rest of them. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Stephen Brown. And Steve Brown said, The meanest people I've ever met in my life I met in church. Brothers and sisters, that ought not to be ever said. And so Jesus shows us that the law of God given to us in the Sermon on the Mount exposes us. We are to give to the poor without expecting anything in return. We're to turn the other cheek when threatened and not seek revenge. We are to give our money away in astonishing proportions. We're to carry on a dynamic, secret, inner prayer life. We are never to be judgmental or condemning of others. We are to live lives that are free from worry. One minister said, after reading through Matthew 5, 7 carefully, God save us all from the Sermon on the Mount. If you listen to all that the law of God says, you will feel naked and exposed and ashamed and helpless, and you will seek out the mercy of our God. That is why Paul says, through the law, that though the law, when listened to, is devastating, it nevertheless is spiritual, righteous, and good. And it works 
ultimately to bring us grace. It acts as a kind of schoolmaster, a pedagogue who leads us to Christ. By the way, the pedagogues in the first century weren't Mr. Rogers. Pedagogue in the first century were brutal. I mean, you turned your children over to a pedagogue to rear your children, and they were ruthless. They were severe. They were hard. They taught discipline. They taught all kinds of morality, shall we say. And Paul uses that term in Galatians that the law is a pedagogue to lead us, a tutor to lead us to Christ, to drive us to Christ, to get us to lose all hope in ever keeping it. Because you can't. And you can't now. Even though you want to, you can't. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can. You and I can't. But it is the goal. It is the standard by which we live. Fifth, we turn to the law of God in order to get a true definition of what it means to love others in our relationships and in society as a whole. There was once a school of ethics called situation ethics that rejected the biblical law as too rigid. Instead, we're told that we need to always do the following thing, what is best for the person. But that begs the question, to, uh, and how do you know what is best for a person? Is sleeping together with someone before marriage, is that best for the person or the worst thing for him or her? How do you know? The law of God is God's way of saying, if you want to love others, act this way. I created people. I know what's best for them. And that is why Paul could write the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and what other whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to its neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment of the law and so the law of God then gives Christians guidance not only in personal relationships, but it helps us as we seek to make our society a more just and merciful one what do people need? What does it mean to treat people with dignity? The law informs Christians of their political and social involvement and responsibilities. Finally, we turn to the law of God because sometimes we need to do things just because God says so. Now, there's one simple rule in my house as a father growing up in my home. If I was ever questioned about a rule... I would always say, because I'm your father and I said so. Now, some people say, well, that's a terrible thing to tell your children. You should let your children feel their feelings. Well, I know what they're feeling. I don't need for them to feel. I need them to do what I say. Why? Because I'm their daddy and I brought them into this world and I can take them out. <laughs> and make more. But they needed to know what authority was. They needed to know and respect things. And they would always run to their mother to see if they couldn't negotiate some kind of deal. And thank God their mother was worse, not, not worse, but she was stronger than I was. Sometimes I would cave because I had three little girls. You know how girls can be to daddies. We adore them. And sons too, but we really adore our daughters. But the issue is 
they needed to know. And sometimes I just want to say to him, because God said so, and he's God, and you're not. You think you're smarter than God? You think the eternal, infinite, self-existent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God is not greater than you? Do you think he doesn't know more than you? How arrogant, how foolish, how utterly stupid to think if God says don't do it, he's got a reason, and you may not know the reason. Sometimes when we all go through suffering, I have, I re, uh, a few years ago, I remember thinking, if he'd just tell me why, then I think I could do it. Well, he doesn't tell me why. Did he tell Job why? No. He's sovereign. He's God. And the godness of God requires us to bow our knees before him and submit to his word and submit to his authority. And so we have to know the reasons, so we think. But we don't have to know the reasons. We have to know God. And we're to do God's will, not because it's exciting, though it will be eventually an adventure, not because it meets our needs, though it eventually will be a joy. It will eventually become more clear. Do it because he is your Lord and Savior, and you are not. Do it because it is the law of the Lord, and if you do it, if you obey him, even in the little things, you will know God, you will know yourself, you will find God's grace, you will love your neighbor, and you will honor him as God in every way. So what's the cure for antinomianism? I asked my wife that the other day. I said, Pam, what's the cure for antinomianism? And she said, more cowbell. Uh, some of you don't watch TV. You don't know what that is. It's so hard to communicate with some of you. But it's on Saturday Night Live episode a long time ago uh, about fixing a song what it needed was more cowbell. How do we cure antinomianism? Same way we cure legalism. Same way we cure anything. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't get anything added in addition to that. You know, one of the things that frustrates me as a pastor and being part of the Christian community, and this is not because I'm smarter or better, although I like to think I am, but it's not true that I'm smarter or better. I see people who don't understand the gospel, and when you don't understand the gospel, you have to put something in its place. You can't live in a vacuum. And so you always begin to develop all these theologies and all these ways of living that are law-based or uh, antinomian-based, and you try to figure out how to make things work on your own, which is utterly foolish. The only thing Scripture says is the power of God is the gospel. And the gospel is the only thing that can transform us. I close with the quote in your bulletin on page one. And this quote comes from my buddy John Newton. And if, if some of you want some good devotional reading... Pick up the letters of John Newton, letters that John Newton wrote to his flock. You know, they didn't have text. 
They didn't have email. So Newton would write letters back and forth with his flock, and he said some of the most powerful things in those letters in terms of applying the gospel to lies. But he said this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. We become delighted to do his, law, uh, his will and obey him in every way. So what about you? You got any repenting you need to do? You ought to be repenting of one or the other or both frequently. And pray that your pastor, your elders, your deacons, your church leaders, the women's ministry, all of us understand the gospel better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible. And the Bible is alive. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It has feet. It runs after me. And we pray that the Bible would catch us and bring us to the feet of Jesus, willfully surrendering to him as our Savior and our Lord. And Father, as we continue to worship, may we now give as people who are so delighted in you, we're excited about giving. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.